This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Let's see, does, you, can everyone hear? I feel like this, I can hear it when I tap it, but yeah. does it actually, is it actually, hello? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's working. Uh, so. It's <laughs> Is it working? Is it working? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, welcome everyone to uh, a new year and a new year of practice here at the Austin Zen Center. Uh, some of you may have were here on uh, on the actual turning of the year and. Uh, where, as per tradition, we, uh, we hold an event for New Year's Eve as a celebration um, where people come in and we first thing we do is we clean. <laughs> we clean the temple uh, from top to bottom, pretty much, as much as we can in our hour and a half, I think we have, of, of work. Right? And, and people show up and just kind of get assigned a task, which if you're not expecting that, it's kind of like, okay, this is supposed to be a celebration. What are you doing giving me a task to you know, clean, to start vacuuming the stairwell or something, right? Um, but it's a tradition um, that actually, I think I was, I, over the winter interim this year, instead of going somewhere and relaxing, I decided that I was going to try to tackle uh, in the in the week. I was going to try and tackle all the things, all all the things, <laughs> not just like all the things that had piled up from the year before, and see if I could, you know, make some progress. Right? There's so many things. Last uh, the year of 2018 for for me was very very challenging and uh, with a lot of loss, um, with a death my mom's death, and I know that many other members of our Sangha have experienced loss of family members over 2018, and somehow the, um, the last couple months of the year were, were I don't want to use the word busy, but like full, very full, and so I, re- I knew that I was kind of not grieving, Right, and so I just—I not that not out of choice, but you know how there's a space that can be there that allows for grieving, and then there's the, another kind of space or another mindset that kind of doesn't allow for that. It's like no, you don't have time for that. Right? Some of you may know this, this uh, the mind that is busy. Right? <laughs> we talk about the mind that is not busy. Right? Because that's what our Zen practice kind of um, illuminates or suggests to us that there is such a mind. But most of the time, I think, for many of us, myself very much included, the mind that is busy is kind of the mind that takes over. And so uh, looking back, which is another you know, New Year's custom, is to look back over the year prior and kind of uh, reflect. And in that process for myself, I recognize, like, so, so uh, I inherited a, a, a number of, uh, not just 
possessions or items to kind of figure out what to do with, but becoming the executor of my mother's estate and working with her, her very large amount of belongings uh, spread over you know, two states, Baltimore and Texas, um, Maryland and Texas, um, just trying to tackle all of that, not knowing, knowing that the grief was around the corner you know that you can kind of understand, like, oh, I'm, there's something I'm not attending to, but you know it's there, right? It's kind of like Buddha nature, actually. Something that we may not be attending to, but we might have the faith or trust that it's there, right? So anyway, this kind of felt like this over this winter interim for myself, where in the process of trying to organize, whether it's organizing papers or... Uh, boxes of handbags and perfumes and items that that belonged to my mom just to to go through that brought up its own kind of wave after wave of oh yeah she's gone right in this corporeal sense she has passed on right and so but not having a a feeling of this means X or Y, but just being open to what is this? What does this mean? That's the spaciousness that uh, I think is what we do fundamentally when we practice Zazen, is not know. When we sit down, we allow, and we try to let the mind that thinks it knows what it's doing, that has this agenda, that's got this task sheet, we try to let that mind uh, settle. Right? The one that um, wants to make sure that it's got its I's dotted and T's crossed. It's like that mind, we try to let that settle when we sit zazen. So in terms of trying this attempt to put things into, uh, put things into where they belong and, and, and organize, and I have a list, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an email to-do list that's kind of <laughs> growing and, and feeling like that's one of the things I didn't get to. And then I was noticing as the year was turning, as, as we moved up to New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, that I had a lot of, this is my confession, a lot of self-judgment, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I, you know, I want to do all these things. I want to clean things so that they're fresh for the new year. You know, the, and then coming in for the, uh, for the New Year's Eve celebration here, you know, the energy of cleaning and the, like all the altars were thoroughly dusted and the, all the zabatons were taken out of the zendo and we, you know, cobwebbed and the amount of, I mean, the people were working outside and raking leaves from under bushes that have been there since the, you know, since the beginning of fall. So there's all this activity to to um, to take care, basically. And so my, looking back, my, my, uh, my intention of using that time to take care of things was a really good intention, yeah? And yet, how we intend and what it looks like in the actual moment of, our, of expressing our intention is really the key, right? Like what you all, how many of you practice the practice of setting New Year's intentions? Couple? 
how many of you have done it in the past and don't do it anymore? Exactly, <laughs> right? Why, why is that? Why do you think you would stop setting intentions? Is it because you feel like, why set myself up for failure? <laughs> I think it's because the mind that resolves to do things is often the mind that executes them, not often the mind that executes them. Sorry, say that again. The mind the that, that resolves... resolves to do things is not often the same yes. mind that Yes, that's very perceptive. Right? Do you all understand that? The mind that, like, okay, I'm going to do this, that sets that intention, is not where it's coming from when it gets done. It's kind of like you were talking about all that self-judgment. That self-judgment isn't going to get things done. No, no. And, but, and yet we still, there's some part of us that still can fall into that yeah. because we think it's going to help. <laughs> Actually, if I don't, yeah, you know, really get myself motivated. Yeah, yeah. And yet we end up tripping over our own intentions. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people who have done the practice of setting intentions um, eventually, like, no, I'm not going to even go there. Right. Uh, you know, gym memberships are, uh, this is how gyms make their money, is <laughs> people setting, like, the number of sign-ups in January, right, for gym memberships. And, uh, you know, just, I, I think seeing everybody here today is like, it's the first Dharma Talk of the year, it's the first public program of the year, it's like, you know, how many of you had the thought of like, ah, I want to get back into my practice. I'm going to go to the Zen Center this Saturday. Yeah, some of you, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, again, it's like that's, it's not the intention setting as, as many, and most of you know who've been practicing in Zen for any length of time, the setting of an intention is a huge practice in Zen, right? To be able to set intentions. However... Or, or working with our intention. I think that's probably where most of the practice comes is not in the setting of intentions, because that, as Joel said, it was the, the, the mind that sets the intention oftentimes comes from a, a place of, I need to be better. I'm not good enough. How can I, you know, how can I be better than I am? So self-improvement, feeling, uh, a feeling of lack. It can come from a feeling of lack, which may be fine for the initial setting of the intention, but how one works with that intention along the way can't be from the same place of, I need to be better. And if it is, what happens? Anyone have that experience of uh, motivation and drive being coming from that place of like, not good enough, not good enough, yeah? Some of you are looking at me like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's just how it is. But how, does, how, do, we, um, how do we enter into, um, into practice in a new year, for example, um, in a way that's sustainable, that's not going to burn ourselves out, that's not going to be self-flagellating? actually, because we all know, even if it's just intellectually, we know that that doesn't work. And yet, we can maybe find ourselves in that place again and again. Like, no, I need to get this done. I, I know myself, I find myself in those states of mind. And it's actually what it takes. What does it take to, uh, to work with that? 
to not fall into that, or if we fall into it, to not fall into it for uh, endless time. <laughs> so, I noticed today, so another funny thing, so we cleaned the entire temple, and then this morning, uh, so we've been open since, uh, so we were here, we were open on New Year's Eve, and then uh, the building was closed for New Year's Day, except for uh, the informal sit at 6 a.m. that Alfonso was doing all interim. And, and then we, we became open to the public again on Wednesday, the 2nd, and today is the 5th? <laughs> the fifth and I walked in and bowed at the altar and somebody it, there's dust on the altar <laughs> and somebody had had put their finger into the like this like oh is this dusty you know that kind of motion so you can see it on the altar and I was like oh this is perfect it's perfect because you know how no matter how much we clean and how much we think we're gonna achieve some kind of state of purity right what happens Something comes along, like just dust or life <laughs> comes There's along and. Buddha touching the earth. Yeah, right? There's some Buddha touching the earth. Yes, but with which mind? <laughs> with which mind does the Buddha touch the earth? So, one of the things that. Um, that uh, one of the experiences I had this new year, in the first couple days of the new year, uh, was uh, Pat? Is Pat here? Oh, there you are. Yes, Pat. <laughs> Pat and I have been um, studying the the transmission of the lamp records, the Den Koroku, and this week we were on the uh, transmission story of Mishaka, who uh, received Dharma transmission from his teacher, uh, Daitaka, and I wanted to. Uh, read his case and verse from this. Let's see. This is a really good translation, the Francis Cook's translation of the transmission of the lamp. Or trans, he calls it transmitting the light. Zen master Kazan's Den Koroku. So the case is, the sixth patriarch was Mishaka. Once the fifth said to him, the Buddha said, practicing wizardry and studying the small is like being dragged by a rope. You yourself should know that if you leave the small stream and immediately come to the great ocean, you will realize the birthless. Hearing this, the master experienced awakening. And then there's, uh, you know, there's the circumstances of this case, the background, which is that Mishaka was a, uh, was a wizard who had a following. <clears throat> he had a following of, they say, how many, 80,000? 8,000. 8,000 wizards. Okay, so he had a following of 8,000 wizards, and he was a very accomplished wizard, apparently. And then he ran into Daitaka, who apparently he knew from a previous life. But Daitaka basically said, to him, uh, <clears throat> that, they had, that they had met in former lives, and that another wizard, Asita, had made a prediction that Mishaka would, would find, would run into somebody who he knew and would accept that person as his teacher. So 
He said, after six eons, you will meet a fellow student and realize the fruit of purity, which is being an arhat. Isn't meeting you my destiny? And Mishaka says, I ask the priest to be compassionate now and liberate me. And Daitaka said, basically gave him uh, the monastic robes and bowl and ordained him. Okay. And then this, uh, when this happened, the 8,000 wizards all felt proud of their, of their teacher. But then the Daitaka, uh, his teacher, the venerable Daitaka, performed some supernatural powers, which is wizardry. This is what wizardry is. Um, and as a result, all the 8,000 wizards all spontaneously became monks. It's a large monastery. It's a large monastery. Well, it's good that they didn't actually <laughs> stay in one place. So they, were, <laughs> they didn't have to pay the heat bills. Or <laughs> so wizardry, this practice of wizardry, or this practice of supernatural powers, you see this again and again in early Buddhism, that the time of the Buddha, when the Buddha was walking the earth, that there are many, many people practicing these... Sadhus. Uh, Sadhus. There are still or people. Or Siddhas. Siddhas is like the special... Oh, Siddhas. Siddhas, okay. Yes. Who have spe- special healing properties. Um, that these... That being able to practice in a way that has results, right? It sounds pretty good. It's like, oh, if I practice this, then I will become... Uh, I will be able to see my past lives. Or I will be able to see the future, right? So these are can be very helpful. Um, however, in within Zen Buddhism, in Buddhism in, in general, these gaining these other these supernatural powers is can be a hindrance. It's not that you may not, you may not be you may still be able to do this to be able to have these particular powers. As a Buddha, you have particular powers, supposedly, as the legend goes, but. Where, how they're utilized or where they're coming from in our enacting of them, that's what makes the difference. Right? So in this case, Dayataka used his supernatural powers to uh, spontaneously transform 8,000 wizards into monks. Right? And that maybe, you know, when, when Pat and I were studying this, we we're like, maybe this is a skillful means. Because here he is saying that you don't need wizardly powers. Right. The verse, uh, well, here, let me read one part of the case here. He says, this is, this is Kazan's commentary. Don't you realize that when someone calls, you respond? And when someone points with a finger, you follow. This does not occur through discriminating judgment or through a conscious effort. It is the working of your Lord, or working of the Buddha. This Lord has neither face nor bodily characteristics. However, <coughs> it never stops moving. Because of this, this mind arises and is called body. When the body appears, the four great elements, the five aggregates, myriad pores, and 360 bones come together and you are a body. It is like a jewel having light or a sound having an echo. From birth to death, you lack nothing and have nothing in excess. With such a birth and death, though you are born, your birth has no beginning. Though you die, your death leaves no traces. 
It is like waves rising and falling on the ocean and leaving no traces. Even though the waves disappear, they do not go to any particular place. Your own mind is the same. It moves without ever stopping and therefore appears as skin, flesh, bones, and marrow. It functions as the four great elements and five aggregates. It also appears in the form of, a, of peach blossoms and verdant bamboo. It realizes enlightenment in the form of acquiring the way and enlightening the mind. It divides into sounds and forms and is different in the forms of seeing and hearing. It functions as wearing clothes and eating food and as speech and action. Dividing and dividing, it is nevertheless never separated from itself. Appearing and appearing, it is not limited by physical characteristics. It resembles a magician performing various magical illusions, like producing images in a dream. Even though 10,000 images go through a, t a thousand changes and 10,000 transformations in the face of a mirror, it is still just this single mirror. If you do not know this and vainly cultivate wizardry or study the trivial, then there is no chance for liberation. So, and then the verse, which I like this other translation of the verse at the end. There's always a verse at the end. There's a case, there's the body of the, uh, the circumstances, the background, then there's the Dharma talk on the, on the case, and then there's a verse. And Kazan, I just have to say, uh, every time he, so he does this for all of the different, all the ancestors, he, this, this format, and each time there's a, there's a verse at the end, he always asks, he always says something different. So for this one, he says, this morning, in order to say something definitive about this story, I have a humble verse. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> and every time he, he, he says something different about, about his verse, but he always asks very politely, would you like to, would you like to hear the verse? <laughs> so would, would you like to hear the verse? <laughs> This verse is uh, translated by uh, Nierman, who's the who's a Chasta Abbey. Even though there may be an everyday purity, silt clear as a river's water in autumn, how can it possibly compare with a luminous spring night, the moon softened by haze? Many are the houses where people thus speak, yearning for a spotlessly clean life. Ah, this was me at the beginning of my intro. But however much they sweep this way and that, their hearts are still not emptied and clear. I'll read this again. Even though there may be an everyday purity, silt clear as a river's water in autumn, how can it possibly compare with a luminous spring night, the moon softened by haze? Many are the houses where people thus speak, yearning for a spotlessly clean life. But however much they sweep this way and that, their hearts are still not emptied and clear. I think this, uh, this is looking at how we ourselves get in our own way from our own expression of what we do when we sit. When we sit, we are right here, we're right now. There's nothing in the way Everything is included in just that exhale 
or, or say even the inhale. Everything is right there. Nothing is cut out of that. And yet, when we're not doing that, we're running around thinking that what we do and our efforts are, you know, need to, you know, show results. We need to do this and that, right? In order to be, uh, maybe in order to be effective, in order to be confident, in order to be uh, productive, right? And who doesn't want to be confident and effective and productive? Who wants to waste their time in vain, right? But how do we navigate this? And as, you know, in the new year especially, this is why I'm bringing this up now, it's like, how do we do this? How do we cultivate the mind that, uh, that has aspiration, but lets go of the, that, other, that other part that oftentimes comes with aspiration, which is critique, judgment. It's not that we don't have that discernment. Oh, how am I doing in my goal to lose 10 pounds in January or whatever it is that we, you know, we come up with for ourselves? There's a, I also found a, um, there's a Dogen fascicle from the Shobo Genzo called Ken Butsu, which is encountering Buddha, seeing Buddha in all things. And I wanted to read a section of that for, for you as well. Shakyamuni Buddha, in addressing his great assembly, once said, when you see all material forms which are provisional, as being part of that which goes beyond such appearances, you will then be seeing the Tathagata. The Tathagata is the name for the thus gone one, which is a name for the enlightened one, Buddha. So I'll say that again. Shakyamuni Buddha, in addressing his great assembly, once said, when you see all material forms which are provisional, as being part of that which goes beyond such appearances, you will then be seeing the Tathagata. To see the forms of things and to see that which goes beyond such appearances is a realization experienced bodily, one which will free you from delusion. As a consequence, you will meet the Tathagata. We treat as seeing Buddha the manifestation which the I, I is in capital letters here, which the I that sees Buddha, uh, I as an E-Y-E, sorry, let me make that clear. <laughs> as a consequence, okay, we treat as seeing Buddha the manifestation which the I that sees Buddha has already brought forth. When we see Buddha nature in other places, and when we see our own Buddha nature as being apart from Buddha's, then even though everything seems to be all tangled up like overgrown weeds, sorry, overgrown vines, we first explore through our training what meeting Buddha means. Then we work on dropping off meeting Buddha until we realize the vital living state of meeting Buddha. Finally, we make use of our having met Buddha. All of these functions comprise our encountering sun-faced Buddha and moon-faced Buddha, so all the myriad forms. 
To see such Buddhas is to see an endless stream of countenances, bodies and minds, as well as hands and eyes. From the time of our giving rise to our intention to realize Buddhahood and our stepping forth right up to our doing our daily practice right now, all is the living eye and the living bones and marrow rushing in to see Buddha. It is our doing our utmost in training to realize the way until there is no gap between our own enlightenment and that of our master. As a consequence, the whole realm of self and the whole domain of other, that is, this individual and that individual, are all doing their utmost to see Buddha. Those folks who lack an eye for exploring the matter through training take up Tathagata's phrases like all material forms and that which goes beyond such appearances, and fancying that the way things appear are not true appearances, imagine that they have encountered the Tathagata. Truly, some of those who are small-minded will take up studying his words like that. But the full realization of the Buddha's intent is not like this. You need to realize that to see things the way things appear while concurrently going beyond the matter of how they appear is to forthwith meet the Tathagata. There is the Tathagata within existence, and there is the Tathagata that is beyond existence. So that may be a little bit... Uh, Dogen. Dogen. <laughs> In terms of how it goes around, right? It goes around. So what is the function of appearances? On the one hand, we are in our practice here, we are waking up to appearance, right? Seeing things that appear and disappear, not as things that exist in and of themselves, but as waves on the water, right? The water itself is um, clear all the way down to the bottom, as the poem says. And yet there's waves. Is this separate? Are these boxes of things that belonged to my mother sitting in my living room and dining room and bedroom? <laughs> are, these, um, are these obstacles to having a clean slate for New Year's? It feels like it. You can feel like it. And we can feel like the appearances are in the way of seeing the truth. Right? The reality below, beneath, beyond <coughs> the appearance. Right? And so when we have an intention to practice, oftentimes that intention can come from this place of, okay, this all is appearance, I need to find the true thing, I need to get to the Zen Center, I need to get to my cushion, I need to start my study groups with my Kalyana Mitta, you know, whatever it is, like I need to get working on this because, you know, this is what it takes. It takes effort, right? The, you know. And then there's this effortless effort. What is the effortless effort of our practice? What is it that we, uh, what is it that we intend to do or not do in the new year? What is it to take care of right here, right now? Which fundamentally, we have to start right there, right? Gil Fonsdell, once, he was uh, in a Dharma talk he gave, 
years ago, he talked about the word faith, he talked about the practice of faith. And uh, in Pali, the term is shraddha, faith or confidence in one's practice, uh, confidence in the path, faith in, uh, in our Buddha nature. And he uh, turned it into an acronym to remember. And he said, okay, so faith, F, for uh, the word freedom, which is the whole endeavor of our practice, is liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation from delusion. But fundamentally, what is it liberation from? Attachments and aversions and suffering. The tyranny of the self. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Freedom from grasping, clinging, aversion, greed, delusion. All of those are in the bucket of the first noble truth. There is suffering. And then the second noble truth? There's a cause. Right? Third? Away, right? This is the whole endeavor of Buddhism, is in the Four Noble Truths. There's a way to end suffering. So, if you ever hear someone say, Well, if you're a Buddhist, then don't you, aren't you supposed to accept everything as it is? So, accept your suffering the way it is. Like, yeah. <laughs> because the first teaching that the Buddha gave, the first, the first teaching that he ever gave was on this, these Four Noble Truths. This is foundational. There is a way out of suffering. However, it's tricky. <laughs> it can be tricky, but it can also be really, really simple. And so in my own process, being able to see how I can work myself up quite a bit. I think all of us can. We can, we can get worked up, right? And it could be, you could say, well, I mean, I say to myself, I'll just give you what I I'll say, something about what I do when I get worked up. Uh, many, many of you know that I've, I've often said that I'm working on patience. I have a, on a patience practice that I've, um, because I, I, get, I can get worked up, in particular around being impatient about things not going my way, or you know, whatever it is, right? We all have this. But in terms of um, the simplicity, the complexity and the simplicity, on the one hand, when we're tied up in these, uh, the Buddha, uh, the Dogen talks about it as everything seems to be all tangled up like overgrown vines, right? Even though everything seems to be all tangled up and it's so complex and you start to look at it and you try to look at it with the perspective of your whole being, your whole conditioning on all your life and your karma, and you try to just look at it and it can be so convoluted and entangled, right? All my ancient twisted, the twistedness is this same twistedness. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. So it can be quite complex and deep. And yet, he says, we first explore through our training what meeting Buddha means. So we first explore what does it mean to meet Buddha? How many here have met Buddha? I sound like I'm at a revival or something. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met Buddha? Have you met, taken Buddha as your personal... <laughs> what does it mean to meet Buddha? 
And is when you meet Buddha, is that Buddha outside of you? Is it outside of a moment? Is it something that's an idea that's in the future or something that you met in the past? Where is meeting Buddha? So Dogen says, we first explore through our training what, what it means to meet Buddha. Then we work on dropping off meeting Buddha. So even when you get to the point where you've met Buddha, guess what happens next? <laughs> Drop, you let go. Until we realize the vital living state of meeting Buddha. Okay. So even though it's very complex and we can get all twisted up in our own thinking, mostly it's our own thinking, and our patterns and our habits, the habit energy that we have that's just like a... a I think Vasubandhu has this phrase of the raging torrent. It's always, always raging, moving, churning. Right? This is consciousness. This is consciousness. Consciousness is always churning. So even within this convoluted, complex, entangled churning, can we meet Buddha? What does it mean? What is the experience, this lived experience, this embodied Within the body, what is it to meet Buddha? Anyone? Have the experience of meeting Buddha amidst churn? Shoo, you're looking like you have something. <laughs> the, the center of what you're saying, or to at least what I'm saying, <coughs> the center is, is this, this physicalness of that experience. Kind of, you can get to it logically, but the physicalness is like a balance. It's like learning to walk. It's, um, you know, when we sit, we can get rid of all the noise and sit and calm the mind and get down to that lower depths and it feels like we're there and maybe you can maintain that a bit. But the trick is how do you keep a hold of that while you're at the top of the, you know, with the waves and the consciousness and sort of have both things going and, and, and have yourself open to all of it without losing your balance. Mm. And that it, it's um, sometimes, while it's not always the right answer to think of the Zendo as a, as a, a dojo, a training, to me that's what I've been working on for a long time, is trying to just keep that balance, to, to, to be on the cushion while I'm on the phone. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, how do you touch the earth? Right? It's this touching the earth amidst everything. How does that become simple? Where's the simplicity in it? I mean, I think it's in the release of control mm. and acceptance of what is. As a starting point. Yeah, as a starting point, but if what is isn't what you thought it would be, if, you're, if you envisioned your intention and the process is in fact unfolding a bit different, then As it tends to do. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's less about the output and more about loving the process mm -hmm. and releasing judgment around what is good and bad, you know? Mm -hmm. And how do we release? How can we... Do you all have the feeling sometimes when someone says, oh, just let go of that. It's like... It's like the stickies. Right. How do we release? What is it to release? 
What does it mean to, I mean, to release something is like a big request, right? It's like, oh, all that stuff that you are churning about, it's like, just, just let go. It's an out-breath, right? And so the physicality, when, when you were talking about the, the physicality, when you started by illuminating the physicality of it, of that place of meeting Buddha, the physicality there, where do you find it? There's only one place. There's only one time. Here and now. Right. And when you, in that here and now, make that shift, and it's not you, maybe, who's making the shift. There's not a you making this shift. It's actually just settling. The shift happens spontaneously of its own when you sit. Now, you may notice the waves happening, but even within the waves, even within the, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that, it's like how, and noticing, and I'm a total drama queen, so I do go down that road of, blah, you know, I, I do that. <laughs> and, and, and from what I've heard and been taught, that may never end. <laughs> that may never go away. And to think that that needs to go away in order for me to meet Buddha, that is a trap. So how can I, in the midst of my flaying about, or flail, flailing, flaying, flailing about, how can I turn, turn the light inward, turn, do that backward step? There's all these different phrases about that describe this turning or this, you know, at, at one point a couple of years ago, I was really into the, the percentages. <laughs> Maybe some of you remember, I was like really into like, how about being like just 5% more mindful? Can you just do 5%? <laughs> you know, just invite yourself to be 5%, or even like 1%, just 1%. 1%, invite 1% more compassion into your life. Right? It could be 0.1%. There is this minute, it is so small, that, but it's the, you know, the other, other phrase, it's the difference between heaven and earth. Right? This least slight shift can be vast. Right? Have you ever had a friend who had the ability when you were worked up about something to just say one word or something that just, oh, okay. Oftentimes, I, I think uh, people come to a Zen center looking for a teacher, looking for a teaching that allows them to make that shift. Why? Do they, it's because they know it's there. <laughs> they know it's right there. And it's like, you know how you, when you have something on the tip of your tongue, it just doesn't come out? But you know it's right there. In the same way, meeting the Buddha is like this. Think of the Buddha as being on the tip of your tongue, right there. And whether it's, uh, it's just taking a, you know, taking a step back, turning the light, or simply just stopping, just stopping for a moment and taking that in-breath and letting the out-breath, feeling embodied, feeling the embodiment of being present. It's not going to solve all the problems. There's, there's no end to the problems. Right? There's always going to be problems. 
I don't know if people, uh, there's this, uh, at, at Tassajara, there's this road, it's one road, the, most of the buildings at the monastery are just like one dirt road, and it's uneven, you know, there's a dirt road, but there's these rocks, that it's a very rocky place in the mountains of the Ventana wilderness, and sometimes, because the, you know, the cars, the carts go up and down the road, people carrying their luggage, you know, in the guest season, or uh, you know the bobcat having to move sandbags or what have you. You're always on this road, and the rocks. Even though you you might be like, oh, this rock is this is a big rock. If people are tripping, or we need to move it. And uh, when I was there with Kosho, Kosho was the work leader at one point, and he he and I were walking to the bathhouse from you know the central area, and he said something like, ah, oh, when I first got here. I was I used to really want to like dig up these stupid rocks and get them out of this path because they're in the way and people are constantly tripping on them and 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 then he said something like I realized that like no matter how many rocks you dig up from this path it's like they kind of just grow out of it <laughs> they just keep coming because that's you know it's all rocks <laughs> all the way down with some dirt, with some dirt <laughs> so so how to how do we navigate without this expectation that we're gonna clear, somehow we're gonna clear all the rocks. Or in the case of Mishaka, you know, and his verse, we, we look for this, you know, we think we're gonna attain purity. That's our, that that's our goal, we wanna be pure. And there is a level of purity, There's a, there is a purity there, but it's oftentimes not the purity of, um, I just need to, you know, the, the altar's dusty again. Oh my goodness, it's, that's not pure. It's not that kind of purity. So how do we find that? How do we practice when, what, when we're already perfect just as we are? Right? This is this Suzuki Roshi's question, or Suzuki Roshi's comment of, your practice, you know, you're, you're perfect just as you are, but you could always, you know, we can always use a little improvement too. Yes, that. I think you just really get tired of everything else. You just get tired of everything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, it's all accurate, but maybe it's unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, I think that's oftentimes what brings people to a center like this, or to a practice, uh, to a practice, is just getting tired of everything else and just wanting to sit down and take stock. Like uh, Blanche talked about this a lot. Sometimes you just, you know, things are just such that you just want to sit down. <laughs> you just want to sit down. Yeah, but even with him, it's practice. Even with death. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we can get our ourselves in, into knots with anything. There's a um, um, in the Genjo Koan, the last in the. There's a little story, short story at the end of the Genjo Koan where. Dogen is talking about the Zen master Baoche, who was fanning himself. Do you know the story? So he's fanning himself, and the and uh, a monk comes to him and says, "You know, master, the nature of wind is permanent, and it does it reaches. There's there's no place it doesn't reach. So why then are you you know why are you fanning yourself?" And the master Baoche says, "You know, well, though you." You know, though you see the nature of the wind, wind is permanent, and that the nature of it is to reach everywhere. 
uh, you don't, sorry, so though you know the nature of wind is permanent, you do not see the nature or how the functioning of how the wind reaches everywhere. And the monk says, well, how? How does it reach everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> this is the expression, right? This is going back to to see forms of living and to see that which goes beyond such appearances is a realization experienced bodily. This is what's meant by meeting Buddha. Right? It's not like I'm fanning myself because Buddha didn't come through for me. <laughs> and I need to fan myself because, you know. Yeah. And then uh, this first exploration. What does it mean to meet Buddha? What does it mean to recognize that there's something on the tip of the tongue, for example? And once we recognize our meeting Buddha, meeting just this, with nothing extra, not needing to fix, not needing to corral, oh, just this. Huh, it's just this. Right? When we meet Buddha, we can't just rest there forever. Even though we've met Buddha, we have to drop off what we think we did <laughs> to drop a, drop that as well. And anything that we find that we want to clutch onto, it's like, oh, what's the most important here? Is it to continue to clutch, or is it to just wake up to the fact that we're clutching? So I apologize. I was uh, I had started talking about the the acronym that. Gil had talked about his faith. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, the first one is freedom. And I'll just tell you what the other ones that he came up with. But I also was thinking about my own like words. Like, of these letters, what, what word would you use? Right. So F for freedom. And then A. Anyone have a, have a Aware- candidate? Awareness. Awareness. awareness is a, yeah, that's a good one. Aspiration. Aspiration. Acceptance. Acceptance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some good A's. <laughs> he came up with, Gil, in Gil's talk, he talked about the, uh, the word authenticity. Authenticity, he talks about mindfulness as being a, uh, an authenticity action, basically. Being mindful is like nothing extra. Just what is this right here without anything extra? without trying to be another way. And then the I. Intention. Intention. That's it. Yeah. Uh, T. Trust. Trust. Right. Which is a little, it's the same as faith in the Shraddha sense. Uh, Shraddha can be translated as faith. And, and I think Gil even said in his talk something like... Um, Many people don't like the word faith, which is, you know, understandable, because oftentimes faith can be used as like a blind faith or uh, a kind of hopeful, mm, hopefulness that's not within reason or that's delusional, (laughs) right, a delusional hopefulness. But, and so the other word, other words that are used to, in English to describe the shraddha besides faith are trust and then also confidence, just having confidence. Oh, when I do this thing, even though I don't necessarily experience the fruits of this practice in each moment, but I know that if I continue on this path, um, 
but the fruits will be expressed in, in myriad ways that I, don't, I can't predict. Right? That's faith. That's trust. And then the H, and this is the one I played with the most in terms of the H. And I, I liked the one he came up with. But. Happiness. Happiness, yeah, right? Happy New Year. <laughs> I mean, happiness, right. I mean, happiness is a big one because that's kind of the, what comes out of the Four Noble Truths. Right? Freedom from suffering. It's a different kind of happiness than like, you know, the, the smiley face happiness. But no, happiness was not the one that he came up with. Home? That's the one I, and that's the one I came up with, the home, like being at home, finding one's, uh, you know, belonging, right? Finding belonging where you are. But that was not it either. Well, harmony? That's another one I came up with, harmony, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Finding the harmony. Healing? Healing. Mm-hmm. Nope. Heart? Nope. <laughs> These are so good, though, right? These are all such good H's to, you know, as a part of this, this honesty. honesty. Yeah, that could be. But authenticity, I think, kind of covers that one. Humility. Humility, yes, yeah. And I was like, yeah, humility, of course. Heart? No. Honor. Hospitality. <laughs> Bingo. That's it. What is Hospitality. Okay. So when thinking about these, these components of faith, of Shraddha, of for freedom, for the sake of freedom, for the sake of authenticity, for cultivating our intention, for having an intention. An intention you can also think of as, as having an aspiration or wish, just a wish for well-being. But then, you know, a little bit more so that it's put into practice. Not just like, oh, I wish. I wish I win the lottery or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then the H of hospitality, rather than it being just for myself, that I be free, that I find my authenticity, that I can figure out what my intention is, that I have trust in this path, but then to, to give it all away, to be able to be the host, right? to invite all beings into this, this uh, meeting Buddha, and it doesn't have to be like about the word Buddha or it's actually how do you, you know, maybe it's how do you come home to invite all beings to be at home. Right? This hospitality. So I feel very blessed to be able to have this opportunity to be a host in this role right here. And um, even though sometimes I forget that and I feel like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, to be able to come back and, you know, if I didn't come into this practice over 20 years ago, if I'd somehow just kind of like, yeah, I could do that, but I could also do this, and went off another way, you know, I don't, I, I don't know where I would have been, but I don't think it would necessarily, I would have probably been in trouble somewhere. <laughs> Not to say that, you know, in a, in a, uh, holistic sense, this feeling of um, this path of practice, I just, uh, I'm very, I feel very blessed to have encountered it, and I uh, have this sense of trust for those who have also found this path of coming home to the moment, coming home to our, you could call it a birthright of our Buddha nature, right, this trust in 
you know, despite the myriad things and the waves on the surface and the churning, to know, even though you don't necessarily act like you know, but to know, fundamentally, this is, it's, everything is okay. okay. That I'm okay. That there's an okayness. That's maybe even not about me. Right? So I hope that this was a illuminating or inspiring or interesting or even just amusing talk <laughs> and that you uh, go forth into 2019 with all all of these all of these components of, of faith in this practice thank you very much